This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The national defense strategy really focuses us on near-peer competitors. The U.S. government, in fact, increased its contribution to WFP in order to assist. Everything that we do in space, a lot of it can be applied to our life on Earth. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. For a second year, CSIS and Smart Women, Smart Power teamed up with the Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE and PhD students from MIT to host the Future Strategy Forum. It's an initiative to connect scholars who research national security with its leading practitioners. This year's focus is the future of statecraft. We just wrapped up a day where some of the smartest women in policy and academic spaces discussed the challenges and opportunities associated with great power cooperation, international institutions, and economic statecraft. But they didn't talk at all about being women. So we thought it would be a good idea to end the day squarely addressing what it's like to be a woman in the international affairs and national security fields. Joining me is Alice Friend, a senior fellow here at CSIS and expert on civ mill relations. She's my co-host for this very special edition of the podcast. Our guests are Radha Iyengar Plum, an adjunct economist at the Rand Corporation, and Lauren DeYoung Shulman, Deputy Director of Studies and the Leon Panetta Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. And they are two of the hosts of the Bombshell National Security Podcast. Welcome, everyone. In the spirit of the Bombshell Podcast, Alice is acting as bartender. And the first question is, Alice, what are we drinking? I actually had to check. We have a lovely red wine and a lovely white wine today, one of which is from Chile, which is one of my favorite places mm. I've ever been. Uh, it is a Sauvignon Blanc. And uh, we also have a red wine, the varietal of which I've never seen before. So I hope <laughs> I'm reading the right one. Uh, it says Mencia Roble Luis Varela Alvarez de Toledo. Yeah, I didn't Spain. know what it was. I just poured it in my glass. I, Toledo, Spain? I don't know. I think so. I think I want to date him or whoever <laughs> it is based on that. I'm, I, I'm enjoying the Sauvignon Blanc. So, Well, each of you have done so much in your careers that we would need probably an hour for this podcast to do all of you justice. But we hope to uncover a few stories here and uh, get some pearls of wisdom that would help our listeners as they forge their own career path. So Alice also has... This question. Yeah, so Lauren, we're going to start with you. Mm -hmm. um, so you are Deputy Director of Studies at CNAS, another think tank here in town. Uh, but you also worked at very high levels in government as Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. You were Chief of Staff to a friend of ours who was an Assistant Secretary of Defense. And you were at the NSC twice, and your final round was as the National Security Advisor Senior Advisor. So in all of that, I want to ask first, how did you do it? Uh, and then second of all, did being a woman matter in these environments and how so? And the question of how did I do it? Um, I, I think I learned 
perhaps from my parents, perhaps in school, I'm not really sure when, to adopt a posture of when somebody asks me to do something that is absolutely preposterous, like that will defy the laws of physics and time, to just nod and smile and say, mm, okay, I will make that work, <laughs> no problem, while mentally thinking there's no actual way we can make this happen and I'll just have to manipulate this behind the scenes. So that made me, you know, admittedly probably appealing as a staffer for, for all of these levels of folks. But when while actually working for them, I have to say one of the reasons to do these sorts of jobs is that they are a master's class, a doctorate in learning how senior level, level decision makers do their work, whether it be how they absorb information, uh, how they prioritize, how they have conversations, candid conversations that are challenging with their peers, including the president of the United States. I guess he's not really a peer. Uh, he's close peer, more senior, much more senior <laughs> than you are. among equals. And, and then also to see that like at the end of the day, they are extremely human. Uh, when people ask about like what kind of television show or movie most resembles these jobs in a lot of ways you know you want to say the west wing and things like that to be honest with you a lot of the time it's veep because you're talking about absurd things at all hours of the night or you're having misadventures in random countries and you've lost your luggage and everything has gone wrong but i i loved these jobs in a way that in some ways feels really awkward after a while because there is a gendered element to it that uh, as you brought up I think there is a challenge for women in particular in roles like this because you almost become a habitual girl Friday uh, where you are always the guy behind the guy or in this case the girl behind the guy or the or the girl uh, where when you are willing to support them on anything you are willing to stay up till hours of the night to make sure that they they have the materials that they need the schedule that they requested the staffers that they need are in the room and you're sacrificing a lot on your own behalf in order to make their lives a lot easier and that works really well when you're working for people that you greatly admire, which I did. But I think there are instances where women go into roles like this and assume that they are only worthy of being the guy behind the guy when really there's a point where they should make a transition to being the guy themselves. And uh, I, I still struggle with this question to myself all the time, but it's still a, if anyone has the opportunity to work for somebody who they greatly admire to be their special assistant, senior advisor, to make their life work better while they're addressing the most challenging issues in the world, by all means do it, but don't do it for too long. That's I'm fascinated by that because I also struggled with how, at what point do I stop thinking of myself as a special assistant? Mm -hmm. And all three of us sitting here actually have been special assistants before. Do you have warnings and indicators, th things that you do, I will now stop doing X thing in order to get my brain out of that mindset? I think the, the point where you should realize you need to stop doing this job is there's a lot of indicators, but one really key one is when you stop thinking that you should go ask the Yemen expert or the Pakistan expert or the Iraq expert for their advice on something. And instead, you should just come up with that advice yourself and then feed it into the, the senior person that you're working for. Because that means that you have lost sight of like what your role is in that institution. Your role in that institution is not to provide the advice yourself, usually. It's to facilitate conversations and meetings and discussions and engagements in a way that is most productive for that senior level person. If you're trying to usurp either the senior person's role or usurp the role of all the experts around you, you're doing it wrong and you need to go find another way to use your spectacular brain in some way. Um, you should also quit when you haven't seen your, your family in like nine months and you're trying to avoid mm. their phone calls. That's a good tip. Well, hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> Can I follow up on that? Sure. This habitual girl Friday, it seems to be even if you're a woman working, but you're not necessarily the special assistant to someone, we seem to all have this default 
yes, we are the people who are the office housekeepers. Yeah. I, I saw mm-hmm. it referred to in an article recently. How do we not even fall into that trap? Even if we are working as someone's special assistant, it doesn't mean necessarily that we're the office housekeeper. I think that you have to think of it in a way of doing the office housekeeping in a way that will advance your agenda and your career in particular directions. So um, Ambassador Rice today in our discussions talked about how being a good writer is truly critical to national security careers. So I'm not the greatest writer on the planet, but I'm a good, pretty good writer and I like writing. Taking on the, if you have a meeting, you know, somebody's got to write the memo afterward or somebody has to write the summary, if you take that on and therefore your name ends up on the memo to the senior official or your name is the one who is sending out the here's what we're going to do follow up, that puts you in a more managerial position or a more um, you know advisory position than the folks who chose not to do that write up. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to say, I'm going to be the housekeeper, but I'm also going to put myself forward in a way. Or if you're the one who is adjudicating like the tasks, who does what when you're, you're following up from a meeting or a discussion, if you make the choices of like saying like, all right, I'm going to be assigned to go brief the senior person, or I'm going to be assigned to go take this meeting on the Hill, or to do something that is much more advancing your own professional interests rather than saying, like, well, I'm going to be the one who buys the cupcakes. Buying the cupcakes isn't a bad role, but make sure you're also putting yourself forward and owning the fact that, like, you can do this and you know you can do it better than anyone else. Rada, did you want to jump in on this before we... Yeah. The one thing I was going to add to what Lauren said is I also think, you know, there's a lot of, like, oh, make sure you feel comfortable saying no to things. And I, I think there's value in that. I think there's value in also having the no and approach, which is mm-hmm. like, look, I can't do this. Here are my priorities. And it seems like we've got a gap here, right? Like, I think a lot of times you end up being the office housekeeper because there are just like tactical things that need to get done and someone needs to do them. Yeah. If that's happening all the time and you're the one constantly cleaning it up, then there's a process missing, right? And you don't have to just own the solving each problem as it comes up. You can try mm-hmm. to own solving that problem. And sort of to Lauren's point, building out that process is a way to sort of take on a more managerial role um, rather than just solving each problem as they come up. I've also said on Twitter before, you can incentivize other people in your office, particularly men, by not learning some of the skills that they expect you as the woman to know. So I've never learned how to send the FedEx packages or how to fix the copy machine, right? So when a guy comes by and is like, oh, you're a woman, can you do And I can honestly say, no, I can't. You're going to have to teach yourself how to do that thing. In my own household, I, for a long time, refused to peel bananas. (laughs) I hate hate bananas. And as a result, did not have to ever peel bananas for a long time. See, it works everywhere. Yep. I don't know how to make coffee. I'm not really a coffee drinker. I drink tea. Yeah, so, so this is not a skill set you need. Well, Rada, you are the economist on the team. You have a PhD from Princeton. You worked in Afghanistan. You worked in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and on the NSC. You were Deputy Chief of Staff at the Energy Department. Then you worked at RAND. Is there anything you haven't done? I'm tired just <laughs> listening to that. I'm pretty tired after that, too. <laughs> But you started out in academia, and then you made the jump to policy. Can you talk about how you made that decision, what made you want to make that move? And did being a woman matter, do you think, in either of the fields? So let me take that uh, question in two parts. So I think the transition, in some ways, it's more of a resume transition than it ever was a substantive transition for me. And I think a lot of people go into getting a Ph.D., not necessarily because they want to be academics and spend 
two years or eight years or 20 years studying deeply the same thing. There are people who want to do that, and that's great, and, and we actually really deeply need those people. But there are people who want to learn how to think through problems in systematic and rigorous way and develop that like mental capital, those abilities and techniques that they can apply more sort of in real time, in real world circumstances. And I think I much more always sort of fell into that latter category. So I was always really interested when I was an academic on figuring out policy applications to what I was doing. And then later when I was a policy person and making sure there was research that underlies it. So I think it's helpful both for policy folks who are thinking, hey, do I really want or need a PhD? And frankly, for PhD students who when you're in the PhD, most of your advisors and mentors, the people around you, are going to be like revealed preference. They want to be academics. <laughs> They're there. I'm an economist. I'm just going to throw economics terms in here all the time. But they do, right? And and that's fine. And that's a great career path. But you're only seeing the PhDs who wanted that career path. And there are a lot of other career paths open. And I think getting yourself emotionally comfortable with that first and then just doing it, I think for me at least that was like the emotional getting yourself ready was the helpful part. I think being a woman, like yes and no, I think it, it was probably both a sort of hindrance and a like curiosity, like to have a female economist who had worked on violence in conflict settings show up in Afghanistan to be like, hey, how are we going to measure and assess all this coin stuff? I'm Rada. <laughs> Here to help. Right. I, I think it was certain, certainly like odd and a little different. I think, you know, I benefited from the fact that the Department of Defense culture was one where they needed to measure and assess stuff because people kept asking them for it. And so not that all of those measurements and assessments were that great, but they needed to provide them. And so I was useful and, and could provide them. And I think having that sort of feeling useful and part of the team was both helpful for me in integrating and helpful in being a sort of odd person out as the woman on the team. I will say, I think as time goes on and you get more senior, you do have to remember to kind of assert your expertise and your sort of background and and make sure you are heard in the room because there is a default deference to older male individuals assuming that they bring a certain expertise and so it's easy to take umbrage at it and hard to force yourself to speak up when that is happening and sort of getting again getting myself comfortable with just like interjecting and being like actually I know stuff about that too uh, all the time is like a weird pushy position to be in but I think a really critical one especially for women especially as you transition from the being the guy behind the guy to being the guy or the gal or the gal very good a question for the group um, do you think women need women mentors to succeed professionally and Talk about the role mentoring played in your career. And I'm actually going to answer that my own question there. I do think women need women mentors, but it's not an absolute. Because if I'm being truly and fully honest, a lot of my mentors have been men. I think the answer is like yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> Same time. Yeah. So look, I think there need to be women mentors. And I think that there's a valuable role for that to play both for women and for men in bringing a different perspective to what you're doing. So like, I suspect many of the people listening to this are women, but maybe some are men. And I think, you know, don't rule out that having a senior female who you admire and respect as a mentor also brings sort of valuable mm -hmm. differences and contributions. And I, I've had certainly had male mentors who were important and valuable. What I think you 
always need in all of these cases is people who both understand the role that gender dynamic plays in career progression and career circumstances and is sort of pragmatic about it. And you, you know, their pragmatism has to match your pragmatism because you need someone who will advocate for you when you need advocacy, but also help you figure out and troubleshoot in a way that you're comfortable with. And so I think that match quality is Mm -hmm. really really important for figuring out like an effective mentor. Uh, At CNES, we did a survey a couple of years ago that asked a lot of questions about women in national security. And I think actually Alice may have given one of these answers, which I agreed wholeheartedly with, which is having mentors or role models who had done similar things before me, just so I could see very tactically how did they do it, became really important to me at certain stages of my life. It was not important all the time. And in fact, like you, Bev, I mean, a lot of my mentors my primary ones in my career have been men. But to be able to see what Kath Hicks or Michelle Flournoy or a lot of other female mentors that I've had, how did they go through their career? How do they make the transition to parenthood and marriage and other things that are specifically impact women in different sorts of ways and continue to make their work their career not only work for them but be you know incredibly progressive and advancing you know what are the the things that they did what are the things that they would recommend that I did not do and how can I use the benefit of their success to be able to show other people that like look I can do this too um In terms of mentorship and what it's meant to my career, I have long needed, whether it be from spouse, friend, therapist, mentor, anyone, to be able to sit me down and say, Lauren, you are acting crazy. Like you are obsessing over this issue or you are worried about this thing in a way such that it is harming you. Please stop. You are capable. You are successful. You can do whatever it is that you are worried about. And uh, I've had a variety of mentors that um, have played that role to great effect. And they're sort of people that I can call up and say, I, I just need you to, to be able to tell me that I'm crazy on this. And you're like, yep, you, you are. It's cool. You know, move on. And they're the most delightful kind of mentors to have. And they come in all shapes and sizes. They don't necessarily need to be in this career field. They don't need to be more senior. They can be of any gender. They can be of any color. And they're a valued part of my life. Yeah, just picking really quickly up on that. I think like we think about mentors as being senior people or people who are mm. further along the career track. I think there's a real value in, I don't know what the right word is, peer mentors. Yes. Peer mentors. And yes. I learn a lot from, A, having people who are going through things that are pretty similar to what I'm doing and navigating them or things that are really different yes. and being like, how come totally. they're doing that and I'm not doing any of that? Like, have I made right. Did I miss interesting choices? Yeah. But also <laughs> to like tell you when you're being stupid, like Rada. You actually hate that. You don't want to do that. So stop obsessing that you're not doing it. Or Rada, is this job giving you an ulcer? Like, is it really worth it? <laughs> right? So I mean, you like you need people who are are kind of having the same experience as you and telling and kind of giving you a, a sanity check. And and I think that's really sort of undervalued and under discussed mm-hmm. in this field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna add and just ask how you two mentor people. And do you mentor the way you were mentored or do you think you add your own spin to it? Because you're now to the point where you're mentors and role models as well. I am 100 percent. I can't believe I'm referencing Malcolm Gladwell. I am a connector. <laughs> um, and I don't know if this is valuable mentorship or not. But when I when I meet somebody, I knew I compulsively want to introduce them to 30 new people <laughs> who share their interests or may be willing to hire them or maybe want to co-author with them or maybe just like the same band. 
And that is 100% the way that I mentor. I also try to get them to see where their their career may be at a stage where they need to go try something new or learn a new skill or ask a hard question of themselves. Uh, but it, it is the the introducing to people that I do. Mm. So if you have asked me for a mentor mentoring coffee and you don't like that, then you should rescind it right now because I'm absolutely going to introduce you to a whole lot of people. I'm a unsolicited advice giver. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mentor by being like, cool, I've talked to you for 10 minutes. Let me ask you a bunch of questions and then provide you with advice that you may or may not want. But I think part of the reason this is valuable, or this is what I tell myself, is that without even knowing it, made up a path and a set of steps for us to get somewhere that A, is not the only way to get to that place, and B, may or may not be the place you actually want to get to. And I think sometimes having... So when just take a step back, have a conversation with you and say, well, what if you did A, B, and C? The discussion about doing those things is actually just as valuable as whether those things are the right Yeah, as a prescription about how to do it. And it's a little bit like, I love making decisions, guys. I just love it so much. (laughs) But part of the value of making decisions is like how people feel and react afterwards, right? Which is, look, if everyone's like, well, that's a crazy decision. We're not doing that. Then you're like, all right, well, I guess we're not doing that. Let's kind of go take a step back and figure out where the trade space is or isn't. And I, I think there's like value to that. So similar to Lauren, if you don't want unsolicited advice, probably don't ask to talk to me because I will give it to you again, whether you ask for it or not. Do you mentor women differently from men or men differently from women? I'm trying to reflect. I had sort of like a series of interns who were female and then I had some male interns and I just sort of noticed myself being different with the guys because I assumed that their life was so dramatically different from what my life had been that I struggled with how to give advice. And then the more I thought about it, the more absurd that sounded out loud. I've asked that question of myself of, I think a lot of women in our field get hit up with a million requests for coffee or advice or other kinds of forums to be able to help people out in some ways. And to me, sometimes it comes down to priority of who is it that is going to benefit the most from the kind of advice that I can give? Not because I'm so well positioned to be able to give it, but that they may not have other avenues to help them get from point A to point B. And can I put be in a position where um, our friend Mara calls this the plucking moment, where you take somebody from like, yeah, they're a great master's degree candidate at GW, to know that they are an amazing research assistant at an institution, or they have moved on to work in policy, or they are on the Hill, or whatever it is, where I could help them go from point, point, point A to point B better than anyone else could, or they may not have the opportunity to get that advice from somebody else. Sometimes that's male-female. Sometimes that's background. Sometimes that's just, I just happen to understand you better than anyone else. And that that's how I make decisions on that. But I don't know that's the right way. I would say, I don't know that I mentor them differently, but I definitely regularly inject gender views into the discussion. And what I mean by that is I have, and probably will continue to have discussions with men who I talk to about interruptions and what interruption how interruptions in conversation are just right now a sort of gender dynamic in how conversations flow and I think it's helpful for them to be aware of it and similarly I will and have advised women who I mentor and women who work for me on how they talk and present information where even when the substance of what they are saying is correct their manner of presenting them presenting it will even if it shouldn't undermine what they're saying. And I think, you know, there's some, I I struggle with this. I go back and forth on it, which is there's some sort of like tacit acceptance of the system when you're doing that. Like, hey, like people are going to misperceive when you up talk or, hey, when you interrupt, women aren't going to feel comfortable interrupting back, right? Like it, it sort of 
reinforces that system. I try pretty hard to be clear that I'm not super thrilled about the system as it is. (laughs) But the more we can kind of talk openly about how there are gendered differences, and those differences might apply differentially to certain women and certain men, but they're fun. They are right now, at least at its core, a gender difference in the experience. The more we can talk openly and sort of be like, hey, you're a junior person. You might not be aware at all that this is a dynamic you're sort of involved in or contributing to or are a party to. The more we can at least start to be more mindful at dealing with it in less gendered ways. So I I do try to be proactive in that. I'm not, again, I'm not sure if it's that effective or how much it resonates or whether I'm just that old lady kind of, (laughs) 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 but you know, whatever. I got my broomstick. I'll wave it. Well, so this segues nicely into the other question I wanted to ask, which I uh, have to confess up front, I stole from the Modern War Institute podcast. Amazing. Uh, John Amble had a bunch of senior women on his podcast recently talking about women's issues, and he asked them whether being a woman role model in national security is actually a drag, if it's a burden, if they wish they didn't have to talk about being women all the time. And since here we have dragged you into a podcast to talk about being women, do you get sick of it? Is it tough? Do you wish we didn't have to talk about this? Kind of talk me through the the dark side of this. Yeah, I think the times when it frustrates me the most are when I get invited to a conference that is going to cover Russia and China and defense policy and drones and things like that, and I get asked to do the women's women and national security panel. Mm. I never want to say no to that because I think there's a lot of interest to say, particularly when we get a chance to say it to audience who would otherwise not be terribly receptive. But at the same time, I would like to hit a point where, like the one that you had today, which uh, in some ways is done in order to make a point, where you don't have to have a women and national security panel in order to talk about those issues. Where you It's invite, not weird to have an all-woman panel. Right. Where you have women uh, talking about Russia and China and drones and defense policy, and that's just a totally natural, normal thing, and you didn't have to try hard in order to make it happen. Uh, now, on the other hand, like I like to be able to show women in national security that there's lots of different ways to be a woman in national security. There's not one size fits all for anything in this career field, and you can talk differently, write differently, go down different paths, and uh, have different kinds of opinions than men and other women in the field. Um, just as a short sidewa- uh, short aside, I think uh, there is this belief that women are like peaceniks, and that they don't like nuclear weapons, and that they don't like the defense budget, and at the end of the day, they are all about women, peace, and security. And I would love to have this you know, monthly gathering of women who want to order a steak and a martini and talk about how the defense budget should be bigger. Like, there's Being a woman doesn't mean that you don't have those sorts of opinions, but there's a lot of assumptions made about women who are in this field. What I would say is- I, Just say I, it. We're I, among friends. I actually like that we have this conversation. What I want to do every time I hear the question on what is it like to be a woman in national security is be like, hey, can you invite some of the NATSEC guys in here and let's like have this conversation with them? Yeah. Right. So let's talk to the men who were special assistants or DASDs or, you know, SESs. And what was it like? Like, what was it like working with women? Did you feel like you treated women differently than men? Do you feel like being a man and having a wife with young kids like in a world of changing expectations meant that you had different expectations for you? And let's have a sort of joint dialogue Mm. about it Um, because I I don't mind having the conversation per se, but I, I feel like often I'm having the conversation with women to women and ultimately I'm not sure that's gonna resolve the issue in any substantive way. That having been said, and and I benefited a lot from this, 
it's just really hard to figure out. There are there are a lot of unwritten rules and expectations when you're a woman going into a number of places. And when I showed up in Afghanistan, I did not know what to wear. Right. Like, it yeah. is, there is not a clearly prescribed outfit in the way there is for men and in the way there is for professional settings. And figuring that out was like actually mattered. Right. I didn't understand the different the different ways in which men and women present and how some of that ways in which people take in information can be gendered and that can impact your effectiveness in briefing senior leaders right and i needed i did need someone to talk about those gender differences and i'm happy to pay that forward i just kind of want to open up the aperture here and let's like get some more people in the room. Yeah. And also get men to think about it. Right. I think part of the culture is that they don't have to reflect on it all the time the way we do, which is, I think, why Me Too is such a shocker. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Because Me Too is a whole gauntlet of different things. And, you know, I think many of the men that we all know were like amazed. They yeah, were completely you know? shocked that, that and horrified. Experience. Yeah. You know, it was actually really fascinating to me that I felt like you had this sort of two sets of reactions happening simultaneously with many of the men I knew being like, whoa, that happens. And everyone being like, it wasn't just me. Yeah. Was just like, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, wow. Whoa. So we all need to all need like, to talk about this more. Talk, guys. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time no. and I want to get in one last question uh, about the conference, the Future Strategy Forum and our focus on the future of statecraft. Rada, you helmed a, uh, a panel today on economic statecraft. Did anything stand out in your conversation that came up? So I look, guys, I was really excited that we had a whole panel where we got to talk about economics just for you. So exciting. (laughs) And I think it was great to have it in this context because we actually got a bunch of people who normally think about economics in really high level, like growth is good or really tactical levels, like we should sanction this person or this entity. And very little in between as to how economic policy should be part and parcel of our national security strategy. And I think we really talked through a lot of those issues today. And and I think, I believe the live stream is going to exist in perpetuity forever it on the is. internet. I was once told by Ben. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and forever so and I ever. would actually really encourage folks to like look at the discussion. I think I was super impressed by the panel and, and the expertise. And I think some of the insights from Liz and from Camille on on some of the specific sanctions issues and on Tory and on Sarah Sewell on sort of broader strategy and trade issues all kind of fit really nicely together to help us think through economics as a national security issue and economic policy as a national security issue, which I was glad to see. Yeah, and I just want to add, we were inspired to put that panel there because of your section on the Bombshell podcast, oh, um, which has made me, I'm not an economist, as you know, um, has made me really think about all these issues a lot. So I was like, let's do a whole panel on this, you guys. Excellent. And let's make Rada do it. And it was awesome, It Rada. was awesome. And I'm talking to Lauren now, you know, Uh, Ambassador Rice really well. You worked for her. Talk about any particular things that stuck out from her comments today. Anything jump out at you? Sure. Uh, So two things, one one that jumped out and one that she hinted at, but I know is really personally important to her. Um, We mentioned earlier how writing is vital to the national security profession. And I, I can't stress enough how being a good writer, a succinct writer, a person who can get the point across in one sentence versus 10 is going to be far more successful than the person who spent 20 hours studying really, really, really hard for whatever brief that they were going to give at that point in time. You know, being able to think think clearly, to write clearly, and to do so in a way that is not only just 
palatable but like really enjoyable to read is something that Susan stressed over and over again when I worked for her but I also know that like when she writes herself it's just kind of a glorious feeling of like you are brilliant and also like I my, my mind is delighted by the ideas that you're putting out there if you can do that in international security profession you have succeeded no matter what your expertise is um, another thing that I know that is personally important to her is the national security profession uh, in terms of the people and this is something that is brought up far too little in our in our discussions overall about national security policy that wherein we talk about the Middle East and economics and NATO and don't necessarily think how do we get the people in place that we need to make sure that those policies really have the impact that, that we want. Um, Ambassador Rice prioritized towards the end of her time in government a uh, presidential memorandum on diversity in the national security field. And that was something that was very important to her, but also she recognized that was important to the whole profession to have the kind of background and experiences that were um, that were different, that could bring different perspectives to the field in a way that just hiring the same kinds of folks over and over again was not going to get. And we get better outcomes for the country if we really thought about how do we get the best and the brightest and the most interesting and diverse folks in the world into our national security field in a way that is going to benefit the country. As I said at the beginning, we need an hour to talk with you two, but uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I want to thank you so much for joining us, Lauren DeYoung-Shulman, Alice Hunt Friend, and Radha Iyengar-Plum. Thank you so much for being here. And for those of you listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, um, I hereby give you permission to subscribe to Bombshell because they are <laughs> fabulous. Uh, the four of you who haven't already. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they are fabulous. Uh, be sure to check it out. And also check out the video from all of the panels and the keynote address uh, from our Future of Statecraft conference under the Future Strategy Forum uh, page on our website at CSIS.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Bev. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.